took us off the trail. Ben, put us back on the trail, buddy. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial pursuit, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs all around the globe seeking to do the same thing you are. If you want to know more about this program or this podcast or want to get barraged by a lot of annoying pop-ups, check out our website, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Yeah, buddy. Happy Thursday morning. It's the Lifestyle Business Podcast. This is the show where we believe building the business is the best way to create more personal freedom and opportunity in your life. Today, I'm joined, as is per the usual, by my captain, my co-host, the man we occasionally call Econ Egon. That's right. Uh, my business partner here uh, approached me, what was it, six years ago with a crazy idea in his left hand and an NDA in his right hand. And he said, Dan, my man, we're going to make millions of dollars selling cat furniture and i believed him how did that go yeah what's the, what's the end of that story yeah <laughs> that's the story was a little bit more romantic than that if i remember it you know towards the end of that salad days we were uh sitting on a beach dreamlining and then we ended up in asia i mean it's it's the story is much more spectacular than the way you make it up to be uh if you guys stick around to the end of the show we're going to share with you some of the ways in which we approach personal finance and this is related to this idea ian you know really i do believe at the time when you approached me with the cat furniture idea i was in debt big time i mean we don't come from the privileged financial class like sure we were able to go to college i'm very thankful for our suburban upbringing and our, our deep love of vanilla ice and other suburban youth cultural touchstones. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I didn't have zero money. I had negative money when we started this business. And it wasn't just a matter of putting up a product, ranking it number one and watching the millions roll in. It was a long term mindset. Re, you know, I had to you take everything that I learned growing up and reset it. And it's not all obvious. And so we're going to talk about some of those resets and those long-term fundamental mindset shifts that have changed. And, and the way we're going to frame this up is like, we're going to go from 20th century mindset to a more of a 20th first century financial script. And uh, anyway, we'll get to that in just a hot second. But first I want to go over some iTunes reviews, Ian. We got five stars from Jake who says, Dan and Ian are a wealth of knowledge and always keep the podcast entertaining. So I'm starting to listen to the LBP two months ago. I've poured over 100 episodes. So Jake's got the LBP poisoning and he's joined the DC as well. Thanks for truly creating the go-to resource for location independent entrepreneurs. Thank you so much, Jake, for going to that clunky iTunes interface, giving us the love. We do work for iTunes reviews. Uh, speaking of DC, Dan, uh, something happened today, which I think is important, which is we opened up for DC BKK. So we are officially open. Uh, so for people who don't know, that's our annual throwdown in Bangkok. We're expecting bigger, badder, more ballerific this year. Uh, the venue is nuts. I'm sitting here with the WordPress backend that Alyssa hooked up. It's like this really cool counter where you can see how many people signed up. Just like refresh, refresh, refresh. I know it's going to be an awesome conference. Oh, I'm super pumped, man. This is our this is our biggest event of the year. Anyway, I'm pumped to talk about this. Let's get on to the meat and potatoes. LBP 162, a 21st century financial script. Ian, we have spent some time over the last few weeks hanging out in the, in the Americas, in the America, and... One of the things I didn't realize is like how dominant some of these mindsets are. 
by talking to a lot of old friends and people who see the benefits of entrepreneurship, but they don't know the right, the next steps to take, I really believe that it's with these financial attitudes. Like personal finances are the ground zero of entrepreneurship. Like the moment I saw entrepreneurship as a possibility for my life, I had to look at that big nasty debt that I had and said, man, I gotta do something about this. Yeah, you had to clean your act up. I mean, the guy on the corner asking for money at the 7-Eleven had more money in his cup than you had, right? Because you had negative money, you were in debt. Oh, it was bad, brother. So yeah, that was the first place, man. I had to get out the mop and start working on that. And part of what helped me to do that was having a clear idea of the vision for the future. And that was taking on these new entrepreneurial financial mindsets. So if you're an experienced entrepreneur, don't flick off the episode yet. We're actually going to talk about some attitudes as they relate to investing and asset management. So we're going to touch on a broad range of issues here. So what do you say we get started with this meat and potatoes, a 21st century financial script? Eagerly rubbing my hands together. Yes, this is your this is your bread and butter, buddy. So we're going to split this up into two different classes of mindsets. And of course, these are broad generalizations. And of course, Ian and I are not financial gurus or anything. We're just dudes who are trying to figure out how to how to grow a great business. So take this for what it is. You're going to be 100% responsible for your own personal finances. Um, that's one of my favorite quotes from Dave Ramsey is there's no 99% with this stuff. I mean, this is where the buck stops. And it's up to us to, to understand this stuff and to be responsible for it. You can't go blaming your accountant at the end of the day. So we're going to split this up into what we would call like a middle class mindset. Um, and which is sort of where Ian and I, our backgrounds came from, maybe the mindsets that we grew up learning about, and then the entrepreneurial mindset, the bootstrapping entrepreneur in particular. We're not talking about go to Silicon Valley and get a bunch of money and try to, you know, we're not going to talk about that. We're talking about bootstrapping, creating great businesses, making wealth, um, having freedom, doing what you want to do with your time, with all that. Starting a band in the side, maybe a James Brown cover band. Maybe black velvet suits, maybe eight people, maybe funding that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, buddy. The first one is the middle class mindset. Your home is your single biggest investment. And here's something I heard quite a bit when I was home, Ian. If I'm going to be paying my rent every month anyway, shouldn't I be building equity with that monthly payment? Whereas the entrepreneurial mindset is not against home ownership, but it wouldn't prioritize it. Instead, it would say, when you enter into a 30-year commitment with a bank, you aren't the one that's winning in that deal generally. It's more likely that the banks and the builders are winning. Right. Okay. So I think to uh, get to the core of this issue, we have to figure out where it came from. And I think, uh, you know, our parents' generation and even their parents' generation, uh, they had a lot of security in their jobs, right, Dana? So they knew that if they got hooked up with the school system, if they got hooked up with the government, that they could essentially ride that out for 30 years and then have a six-figure retirement, right? And so that, that kind of dream is over. And so when you were looking at home ownership back in the day, I think it probably made a lot more sense because your career was a lot more a lot more sure shot per se. Right. And so when a lot of people ask me, well, why would I pay more in rent when I could just build equity with what I'm gonna be doing anyway? And I think a lot of people, if you know, if you ask yourself, like, what were you doing five years ago? A lot of our lives were just so, so different. 
in particular if we're making this entrepreneurial transition. Now, can you really expect to project that five years into the future? I'll quote from, a, from an article from Time Magazine uh, written by Barbara Kiviat. She said, one of the major trade-offs here is mobility. And we might say that here, we might say like uh, the optionality, like you cut down your options. Being free to move around the country easily means that, that people go where the jobs are. She quotes a professor of economics who said that the places with high, owner, high home ownership also seem to correlate with the places of high unemployment. You know, of course, this is anecdotal. Again, we're not scientists or anything, but you know, this really hits home for me because I do remember people in my family not taking, not carrying on successful career paths because they didn't have the option to relocate, even to locations that were relatively close. Right. So what happens? Uh, basically, what you're saying, Dan, is uh, you get yourself into a 30-year mortgage, and then your optionality disappears, right? Because all of a sudden, you're tied to that town. You're tied to whatever source of income that you're tied to, right? You can't explore other options in terms of your career necessarily, especially if you have a family, right? And you have this yeah. payment looming over your head. So as soon as you get yourself into that position, your optionality kind of disappears. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you get yourself into a house, uh, I think a lot of your options disappear, especially if it's your first little bit of monies. It's really tough to not build that small little equity if you do not have a vision of the future. So we're going to talk about like what those visions of the future look like for entrepreneurships. But let me just get on my high horse about mortgages real quick. I think mortgages are this this incredible symbol of, in particular, the American dream. The way that they've sort of evolved over the decades and the mindsets are just so incredible to talk, to go back and, and talk to people. Barbara brings up that they're what is perhaps the worst side of the home ownership fetish. She calls it a fetish. For many years, the fact that our home prices were rising enabled us to ignore deep structural changes taking place in the American economy. For decades, income equality has been growing and the middle class wages have been stagnant. In the eyes of at least some academic observers, and I'm not committed to this, but I think it's interesting, cheap credit, especially when used to buy even larger houses, has been a way to get people to feel okay with their lot. So the home ownership expansion, the key element of the American dream, uh, has been this defensible linchpin for the broader aims of expanding credit and consumption. And that's a, a complex way of saying, who's winning here? You know what I mean? Right. Like, who's getting rich off of this stuff? It's not mom and dad. One thing that I think about homeownership um, is that it's a very emotional response, right? I think that a lot of people purchase homes uh, because they think it's what they're supposed to do. Let me give you an example. One of my good dear friends, uh, he's having a kid. And uh, for them, it makes sense for that child not grow up in a rental house for whatever reason. Maybe they had some traumatic experience when they were kids and they grew up in rental houses and they had to move around a lot. Uh, whatever that means, they have an emotional response that is driving them to purchase a house and not have their child be born in a rental house. And that, to me, is is not in my line of thinking as an entrepreneur, but I think that that is very in line with thinking with some of these uh, kind of old school middle class thoughts. Let's get moving on to point number two, because I think it relates pretty well, Ian, which is the, the middle class attitude is I should at least be doing something with my money, whereas the entrepreneurial mindset would be I don't need to be doing anything with it right now. The interesting thing about these two groups of people is that they both share the same general outlook, which is that I have no idea what's going to happen. And so the middle class person might reply that, see that as a bad thing. And so what they're going to do is they're going to go out and sort of put their financial flag in the sand and say, well, at least I'm going to get this mortgage, or at least I'm going to invest in this mutual fund. Whereas the entrepreneurial mindset 
They say, I have no idea what's going to happen, and that's a good thing. I guess I often see this as there's this definition of depression that says it's not having the ability to construct a future. And I thought that that was a really interesting idea. You know, it is sort of a hopeless feeling when you look into your future and you, you just have no idea. And I do see buying and investing in particular as ways in which we express a future. It's a way in which we feel a little bit of power against that hopelessness. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Dan, uh, it can be your rock, right? So that house emotionally yes. can be your rock. And we were saying like, uh, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Yeah. So if you don't understand the opportunity in entrepreneurship, it does make sense why you might take your first monies and put it into the 30-year mortgage, which is not super beneficial, but hey, it's sort of better than what we don't know. Yeah, I remember um, having dinner with my uncle a couple years ago, and my uh, cousin—he's like a very frugal guy, and um, he, he he has a good-paying job. And my uncle found out that he had seventy thousand dollars in his savings account that he was basically just sitting on, and uh, my uncle just thought that that was unbelievable. Like, you can't just have seventy thousand dollars sitting in a <laughs> savings account. You have to deploy I've heard that this cash so many times. Uh, somewhere. Right, you, it's just not acceptable. You got to put it into a house. You got to put it into a car. You got to put it into a mutual fund. You just can't have the cash sitting around. And for an entrepreneur, that's the best. That's one of the best positions to be in, right? Because then you have the yeah. opportunity when the iron strikes to deploy that cash. All right, number three, the middle class script um, that I grew up with was entrepreneurship is risky. It's fundamentally a risky thing, and. The entrepreneur mindset would say that entrepreneurship is safer. Obviously, you and I don't see ourselves as experts on this stuff. Like we're working through these issues like everybody that's listening to this show. Um, but I got into a, a discussion with one of my friends and I realized like how far off our attitudes were on it and how much more thinking I had to do on it. And he actually said, you know, maybe, maybe that path is good for people because they have these jobs that they're gonna have 10 years down the line. And like my jaw hit the sidewalk. Like I couldn't believe people still think that jobs might be there for 10 years from now. <laughs> I think job security, Dan, is at an all-time low. I mean, I don't think it's possible to get in with any organization these days and, and think that your job is going to exist 10 years from now. So in, in that respect, you know, I think entrepreneurship is a lot less risky, right? Because at least we have control of our skill sets and our cash flows. That's what I said. Look, I said, look, like, you're talking about a person who is building a system of security that has a single fail point, which is fundamentally an insecure system. So here's, here's that script's base. On the one hand, you've got a job, you've got a parked asset in your home, most likely, and you've got a credential or a career, career skill set. Any one of those things goes down and the whole system fails, right? You lose your job, uh, Walmart moves into the neighborhood, or like so many people that I grew up with, the career that they ended up getting credentialized in became irrelevant and done, single fail point. Whereas when we're looking at the entrepreneurship skill set, so that's a three-sided bar, a three, a three-legged bar stool. Have you ever sat on a three-legged bar stool after a few beers, Ian? Very difficult to do. I mean, it's like riding a three-wheeler, right? You try to go around <laughs> the corner at 20 miles an hour, and I think that's why they don't make them anymore. That's what it's like to have a job. Whereas the entrepreneurship barstool has many redundancies built into it because instead of the job, the home parked asset, and the credentials, we are developing over the long term cash flows, intelligent adaptive assets, which is a small business, right? That's something that can actually, Walmart comes in the neighborhood, you start selling to them. And then we're building the entrepreneurship skill set, which is something that can, it's industry neuter. 
it's generic. In other words, you can apply it to a broad range of industries. So Dan, one thing that I think might be coming across the episode at this point, and you know, you and me, uh, obviously all we do all day is talk about how cool entrepreneurship is, right? And I do think that it's necessary for people to have jobs, right? And we employ people that have jobs and that's great. So I totally agree with you. Uh, I, and I definitely don't want to come across like this is the only way, or this is the best way, or that there's no exceptions to this stuff. Like I'm, I don't want that us to be about that for sure. I also want to say that like taking control of this stuff and understanding how this works is precisely what it took for us to change our lives. Yeah. And I think that's why your quote, uh, your Dave Ramsey quote was so uh, important, right? Because that guy just empowers you to be smart with your money, right? He doesn't necessarily encourage entrepreneurship. Yes. And, you know, I love his idea about the 100% responsibility too, because a lot of what I was raised with, this sort of fundamental credulousness, this idea that you trust certain things, like you trust banks, right? Like banks are responsible institutions and you trust your employers. And, and, I, and what Dave Ramsey's really saying, um, look, I'm not saying don't trust the bank. What I'm saying is understand that they've got an agenda. There's a reason why they're dealing with you. And when you understand that, you'll be able to make more responsible decisions. And that's fundamentally this idea of personal responsibility, which, you know, is, is that's what we're talking about here. So anyway, let's get moving on to the, the next point. Um, the old script, the one that we were raised with, says it's okay to have nice things, quote, if they last and if I can afford the payments. Uh, anyway, you deserve it. Whereas uh, the entrepreneurial script, the one that Ian would teach us is, look, you can't afford that. I remember, Ian, I was telling, I was telling this story about debt to my friends. I was telling the story of the $350 Nissan Datsun. It was the low point of my dating life. And uh, I came home um, from Vietnam in 2008, and I had to get a car and live in San Diego for a little bit. And I was like, bro, I just want to get a loan on a Maxima. You know, something safe, something that's going to get me there. I can afford the payments. I don't want to screw around with a car I have to take to the garage, like all the classic things. And I remember, man, this was one of the coolest things you ever did to me was like, you didn't let me get away with it. And I fought you on it. And you were so cool when you said, look, you can't get into these. You can't afford it. Entrepreneurs don't do things that they can't afford. And so there I was literally decimating my dating life with one fail swoop, bought a $350 car. Yeah, I think uh, that was a great car, by the way. It got, it got the job done. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think about when I, when I buy things like that, Dan, and I haven't bought anything like this for a long time, is I think about, okay, so I'm going to buy a $10,000 Maxima. What percentage of my net worth does that represent? And if I'm going to have yeah. to go into debt to buy a $10,000 Maxima, uh, which is essentially a luxury item because I have other ways to get around, then that's a problem. If I have $40,000 in the bank and I buy a $10,000 Maxima, Honestly, Dan, still in my mind, that's a liability, especially as an entrepreneur, because I know at any moment I might need to deploy that $40,000, right? And yeah. one-fourth of my total net worth on a car seems ridiculous to me. So you see these guys, and I couldn't figure this out when I first started working. I'm driving to my $30,000 job, and I see this guy driving a $45,000 BMW next to me. Uh, that didn't make any sense to me and it shouldn't make any sense to you either. You can't afford yeah. the, the, the amount of people that can afford in outright cash, a $40,000 BMW. So the idea here, Dan, is that, uh, you have to have $200,000 in my mind, $200,000 in the bank to buy a $40,000 car in cash, you know, and, and this is all relative, right? So that might be in my, it, that might make sense in my scope. That might not make sense in somebody else's scope, but as an entrepreneur, I want to be able to have that money to be able to deploy it 
in business yeah. ventures and it's not important to me that I have that $40,000 for that BMW. Well, you know, and it was weird pulling up to the office in a $350 car. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> number number five, buddy. Hey, thanks for that. That really uh, changed my life for the better. I'm glad I made that decision. It made me a stronger person too, to be honest. You know, like having to just say, you know what? There's better things to care about. And I think that's, to me, this is what this whole episode is about, is finding these scripts, like these new mores or values to latch onto and say, hey, I can be like that instead of be like this. And that's why Dave Ramsey's been such a big impact in my life is he he t- gave me an alternate that was cooler than the one I knew. That's why his tagline at the beginning of every episode is uh, the paid off home mortgage is the new BMW. And it's, it's cooler to have a, a paid off mortgage than it is to have a cool car. And uh, I, that to me was really meaningful because I can get swayed by these things. You know, I, I don't want to be the, the person that everybody thinks is a weirdo. Now I'm more okay with that, of course. Six, six years of being a full-time weirdo, I've come to terms with it. All right, number five. And you, five. sir, are a weirdo, yes. <laughs> number five, the, the middle-class script that I grew up with said saving 15 to 20% of your salary is wise. And the entrepreneurship uh, script says 15%? What kind of wimp are you? You can only save 15%. <laughs> I think, you know, when I said this to you, one of the points you brought up, which I thought was so cool, was you said for, for the middle class, for when we were growing up, there's such less value to living poor. You know, it's so much more difficult to see the upside potential if you're in that kind of, it just feels like a constant sacrifice. Whereas for the entrepreneur, you're, you're seeing the potential for this upside all the time. So fundamentally, here's how it works. Ian, I, I think people underestimate how long you have to keep it really tight in order to see upside. So if being an entrepreneur is basically like you've got exponential potential, right? Like that's the exciting part and people really do see it. But people underestimate how long you have to track with the x-axis, right? So on any exponential curve, you have that hockey stick, right? But the problem is the hockey stick's really far away. And so this idea that you have to kind of stay close to that x-axis for way longer than people think. I get emails from people, Ian, saying, you know, the problem is, is that like, you know, my nut, my monthly nut is I got to make like $10,000 a month in order to pay for all this stuff. And it's not, I'm thinking this guy isn't going to be able to hang. He's not going to be able to stay at the x-axis long enough in order to see the upside. Yeah. So Dan, when we first started our business, I'd say for the first three years, we used to have some pretty intense debates about our spending habits in the business, right? And so the best way to stay in the game is to not spend any money, right? So if you can save as much money as possible as an entrepreneur, you can spend as little money as possible, then that means you you can kind of extend your runway, right? And then you can work on new product development. You can work on all these things that matter in building a business. All right, Ian, finally, uh, the final script that we've identified is uh, when I grew up, there was this constant need for people to diversify, to beat inflation, to, quote, identify safe investments with your money that are no-brainers, whereas the entrepreneurship script, and this is sort of a new one for me, and I'm I'm excited by it, um, is that I need my money to adapt and work for me. Keep it in cash and wait for the dash. And uh, we're going to call this the... Mark Cuban war chest theory. And I've had a lot of very interesting conversations with people. And people have all kinds of opinions on this. Again, this is just our opinion. Um, I get emails from people, friends come up to me and say, Dan, I got $20,000 in the bank. What should I do with it? 
<laughs> oh, you know, and it's, it's interesting, right? That this comes from our background. Like, like you have to do something with that. You know, <laughs> you can't just hang for a little bit. Uh, and this is again this idea that uh, you know you have to deploy that money. And what the war chest theory um, would say. And Mark Cuban is a billionaire who keeps the majority of his assets in cash because that's his war chest. And that gives him options when things go bad. So even if an inflationary event were to occur, Mark would be in a great position within those marketplaces to have an incredible amount of options and buying power. So in other words, even if the U.S. dollar suffers inflation, within the U.S. market, you're going to be in an incredible position to buy distressed assets. So um, in other words, beating uh, inflation is small ball. And it's not a good use of your time, given that you are at the helm of one of the most effective investment vehicles in the world, which is small business entrepreneurship. Ian, every single day I meet somebody who's taken 10K, 40K, uh, 5K, nothing, and turn it into hundreds, if not millions of dollars over the course of a half decade or a decade. Find me a mutual fund that's going to do that. So at the end of the day, like if you're a small business entrepreneur and you're spending time like diversifying money into mutual funds and stuff, like all those mutual funds are just looking for you, right? They're looking for people who know how to make money that they can invest in. So the idea here is that, you know, trust yourself first, um, keep your cash on hand because eventually opportunities will come down the pike, even if you can't see them now. And at minimum, it's cash runway, it's freedom. It keeps you in the game, poised to take advantage uh, of those upswings. I think the bottom line with war chest theory, Ian, is diversification's great and you know small time investments are great, but there's no greater position to be in than the cash position. And that's what war chest theory is all about. All right, hey, it's a bunch of phil philosophical rambling this week, but um, Ian and I are very interested in how you guys think about finances, any books that you have to suggest to us, any alternate theories, um, we would be very interested because of course, you know, we are students uh, as well. So yeah, absolutely, Dan. And I think uh, for me, the hardest part about this, uh, when I was first starting to think about it was going against the grain of what everybody around me is doing. And so, you know, for me, getting over that was was kind of the biggest hump. And then once I started to figure out that there was other options, you know, and this is coming from a middle class background. So once I started to figure out that there was another script besides the middle class uh, script, you know, then it then it started to get a lot more clear for me personally. All right, let's get moving on to just the tips. All right, hat tip to Alyssa Doucette. Alyssa, of course, uh, long-term team member uh, running the Dynamite Circle event. Uh, she was the one who hooked up all that sweet dashboard so we can sit and hit reload all night long. <laughs> but she came to me the other day and she said, man, I'm using this new app called Pizzizz, Pizzizz or something, P-Z-I-Z-Z. Put it on your iPhone. There's two different apps. There's a sleep app and there's an Energizer app. And what it basically is, is it's a meditative walkthrough of not only a nap, but a whole night's sleep. And it's combined with sounds of waves and, and, and rain and stuff like that, some music, plus a meditative creepy guy who walks you through sort of some breathing and relaxation stuff. And I got to say, Ian, this isn't something I've just been using for a few days. Like I've been using it for the past month, every single time I sleep. And you know, I take a lot of naps and um, it's awesome because you basically pull up Pizzizz and you say, I want to take a 30 minute nap and boom, you put on a pair of Eric Dubbs bed phones and you, you go to, go down to bed and you, 30 minutes later you pop up and you're wake, woken up naturally. 
I, I, I pretty sorry, Dan. I kind of tuned out. I mean, all I caught from that was that you sleep with a creepy guy sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, speaking of creepy guys, I want to give a hat tip to the Dominator, who suggested to me Soundscape iPhone app as well. It's very similar. It's like really high quality recorded sounds of nature sounds. And I use this like when I'm on the plane, when I'm traveling, and sometimes when I'm taking naps, depending. But mostly I'm sticking to the pizzazz. But if you're looking for cool just nature sounds to, to uh, sleep to or to have while you're traveling, check out soundscape all right ian you are the dj again this week speaking of six years ago i think this is we used to rock out to this stuff when we were starting the business right you had a wine rack that was uh, fairly stocked and i remember listening to this album uh consuming a little wine with you yeah buddy this is my morning jacket with lay low and we hope that you'll lay low to that x-axis and join us next thursday morning on the lbp booyah Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't be shy. We've got a mailing list. Check it out at lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Go there, get yourself signed up, and we'll keep you up to date on everything we do, plus give you immediate access to episode one through 100 of the LBP. It is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We'll see you next Thursday morning. Oh.